0: Hello, and welcome to Banking Transform, the top podcast in retail banking. I'm your host, Jim Roos, owner and CEO of the Digital Bank Report and co-publisher of The Financial Brand, an uncertain economy combined with technological advances, increased consumer expectations, and new competition will force banks to reimagine business models and rethink how financial services are delivered. More than ever, banks and credit unions must find ways to meet consumers' individual needs at speed and at scale. Continuous digital transformation is required across the entire organization. I'm really excited to have my friend Ron Shevlin, chief research officer at Cornerstone Advisors and senior contributor to Forbes on the Banking Transform podcast. We are discussing how banks and credit unions must respond to the major opportunities in the marketplace today and try to avoid the threats facing financial institutions in the just released report authored by ron shevlin what's going on in banking it was clear that the banking industry was concerned about the uncertain economy and the impact on interest rates and the cost of funds while still being challenged to hire and train the right people at the same time there is a diversity of opinion on how to respond to the opportunities of real-time payments and the speed of digital transformation. The question continues to be, how does a bank, credit union, or a fintech firm become future ready? So welcome back to the show, Ron. You know, we we have conversations on an ongoing basis, but it's always great to have you as a guest early stages of each year, um, helping to set the stage for what banking, what the banking industry should actually expect going forward or what we think they might have to expect. So in your report and in your your research, what would you say is the most important trend that we'll see emerge in 2023?
1: Well, Jim, first, thanks a lot for having me. Uh, I appreciate being on every year. I've been wrong every other year, so I'm not sure why (laughs) this year will be any different. Uh, But thankfully, I've got no shortage of opinions on those things. Uh, I think there's a couple of things, though, that uh, the survey of about 300 mid-sized bank and credit union executives Will will show that this year kind of em- will merge as trends. On one hand, uh, there's just I don't think any question that real time payments is going to become a lot more of a uh, of a presence in the industry. We're expecting Fed now to to release and launch something this year. Uh, no question about that. Uh, the other thing I would have said if you had asked me this about a week ago, uh, I would have included uh, chatbots and AI. I think we'll, maybe, well, you'll, maybe you'll want to get into this in a little bit more detail, yeah. but uh, I think the launch of ChatGPT a few months ago just lit a fire under a lot of financial institutions to say, wow, oh, you know, maybe we're missing something here and really need to take a look at it. Uh, the data that we've been looking at for the past couple of years, Jim, has certainly shown an increase in the deployment of chatbots, predominantly by credit unions, probably not surprisingly, because they tend to be more... Uh, consumer focused. But I, I think the smart banks are also beginning to understand that chatbots aren't just sort of front end, front line, you know, answer the easy question things. They're actually very employee facing as well. So I think that uh, will, could, will be a, a, a big trend as well. And uh, you can't go wrong in this industry, Jim, by predicting that digital account opening is going to be a, a big trend. It, yeah. it does not end. It, it continues to be at the top of the charts of the technologies that banks and credit unions plan to invest in.
0: You know, it's interesting. In your report, uh, What's Going on in Banking, it spells out a lot about how the industry is responding to change. Um, what was your biggest surprise from your research, and what's the most glaring gap that you see between where financial institutions need to be and where they are today?
1: Jim. It's this is this could go on this, this discussion of this question could take up the rest of our time, because if there was a surprise and a, a gap, it has to do with digital transformation. Yeah. I've been asking for the past couple of years, do you have a digital transformation strategy program initiative, whatever it might be, and how far along are you in that? And I got so one thing on one hand, Jim. Uh, I see a, a large percentage of financial institutions who don't seem to be making a lot of progress in that. Uh, but on the other hand, I, I think I'm becoming, I'm, I'm beginning to come around to the belief that there is no end to a digital transformation.
0: No. no.
1: And so I think the gap for me, and and this is something, you know, we could probably debate and argue with for a long time. But you know, you listen to. A lot of folks talk about digital transformation and there's a line of thought or reasoning that says, "Well, wow, digital transformation is a lot more than just technology. It's about culture and all those things. And I have resisted that for a couple of years and it was actually uh, at the Bank Director Aoba conference just a few days ago that I came back from. But I think I've kind of codified my thoughts around this. But I think a lot of financial institutions who have digital transformation programs, initiatives, whatever they might be, Need to distinguish that from the idea of digital modernization, because there is a clearly a technology component to this. And it isn't necessarily about ripping and replacing your core system. It is about core workaround strategies. It is about modernizing the architecture, if not the core but I've, you know, I, I had said something a couple of years ago that I had written said, can you really say that you've digitally transformed if you haven't replaced your core? Uh, and now I'm coming around to the belief, if not realization, that you really can't say you ha- that you've digitally transformed if you haven't created some form of digital, digital modernization and workaround strategy, because uh, I don't think necessarily you have to rip out the core. So uh, I think that's was kind of the surprise was the lack of progress on digital transformation and the, uh, and the and the gap I think between where they need to be and and where they seem to be.
0: You know, it's interesting. We you know we do research on the same subject and we've actually seen the number of organizations that say they are um, they're mature in the digital transformation process go down. And I don't think it's like they're not doing things. What the problem is, they're not doing things fast enough. So what happens is. Where they need to be based on the consumer, based on the competition, based on what we know about what needs to be done, they're almost ending up farther away because they're not moving fast enough. And to your point about, you know, is it ripping out the core? Where do you focus? You know, I think initially. Everybody thought digital transformation was a project as opposed to a process that's really never ending. There's no end point to this. The finish line is going to continue to get away from you. But how much fer- further is it going to get than you're going to catch up to it? The other part is so much attention is spent on the top of glass as opposed to the below the glass. And I think, you know, those organizations the furthest along realize that if they don't digitally transform their processes, their procedures, their back office in, in, a, in a full sense, not just the technology, but the way they do things, they're never going to get there. And you, you brought up earlier, you know, digital account open. You know, I, I get frustrated every time I talk to an organization that says, well, we partner with a really good firm to bring our digital account opening process up to date. And then you realize that the first thing they do is they bastardize the process that the solution provider has created that lets them avoid using driver's licenses. For instance, as soon as they say, well, I like what you have, but we got to stick with the driver's license as the know your customer component. You've already added four minutes to five minutes on the process as a starting point, not including anything else. So again, it's it's rethinking what's necessary and actually being willing to accept some of the solutions that are out there that can really make you digital ready. It, 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 it's a big question mark out there. And as as your study showed um, the number of organizations that felt they were, that they were moving forward fast enough was very small. And I don't, do you think it's going to get any better with the economy being still uncertain is that can be an area where people are going to actually maybe scale back when they
1: shouldn't? Uh, Well, I don't think they will because the, the cycle of the economy right now is is uh, causing deposit gathering to be such a huge uh, uh, objective and, and goal for the year. So I think they're going to try to accelerate that because they'll want to take advantage of easy digital account opening in order to gather some deposits. So it might light the fire under them. I think this year, Jim.
0: Yeah, you know, you, as you mentioned, there's been a lot of innovation around payments. Um, I've mentioned in a previous podcast that I was at a, a payments event. And when we asked for, and these were big organizations, asked for how many of these organizations were going to implement real-time payments upon the availability of doing so, like nobody raised their hand, which which astounded me. I, I looked and I, I, I'm i thinking that I was hearing the question wrong. And what it was is a lot of organizations were thinking, well, we'll see what happens and then we may jump on board. But taking that a step further and and looking at what else is going on in the marketplace in the payments area, you touched base on it in your Forbes article uh, a week ago um, around the biggest banks coming together to offer a wallet. And the gist of the article from where I read it was you said a big boo ha about nothing. It's not going to, it's not going to transform the industry. Can you describe that a little bit about your take on that?
1: Yeah, I think I was very negative about the prospects of a big bank developed digital wallet. Um, and that's not to have any slight at early warning or, or Zelle, which has been very successful, but if you let, let's scale, let's let's look into the the success of Zelle for a moment. Uh, I had somebody issue, you know, argue with me on LinkedIn past couple of days that I was too negative about the prospects for this digital wallet, and his point was, look at the success of Zelle. Well, Zelle has been successful for a couple of reasons. They've done a great job of marketing and and getting this, you know, out into a lot of other financial institutions. But number one. Part of the success of Zelle was that it, there was an existing transaction base. Remember, on day one of Zelle, there had to have been millions of transactions because everything that the big banks were doing on P to, around P2P were on day one now classified as Zelle. Correct. Yep. Second, I think, tr- big driver of Zelle's-
0: Also, if I'm not mistaken, A to A, account to account. Yes, an account yeah. to account
1: too. Yeah, right. Uh, even, even more kind of- Right. not ridiculous, but even more. So number two driver of success for Zelle has been the demographic adoption among, uh, let's say, people you, closer to age than so you and me, Jim, <laughs> baby boomers, uh, who were not doing uh, P2P through Venmo or maybe not PayPal or any other P2P platform. So question is, it who's using digital wallets today where is the growth opportunity for it uh, and similar things so are they going to be able to steal share from the googles the apples anybody else doing digital wallets that's a tough that, that, that's a that's a tough road to hoe road to hoe um row right not road yeah i don't know what that saying is but you know that's what a, i mean that, yeah that's a good uh, i i don't i don't think i can give you the answer to that one yeah, I, I say that a couple a bunch of times, I'm always getting corrected. So yeah. that's a tough tough path to go down. Let's call it that way. Uh, and then second, uh, are we really going to see huge adoption among non-digital wallet users today? And just looking forward and looking at and Jim, we talk about this all the time, how consumer behavior has changed. The the idea of 20 years ago of you know having all your accounts at one institution in one place never succeeded and is even worse now as younger consumers, you know, let's say under the age of 45 or 40 even, uh, you know, have 30, 40 different financial relationships. I think it's a really steep um, hurdle for the big banks to get over to kind of drive that change. Not to mention, why are they doing this, Jim? Jim? They're not doing it because of consumer convenience. They're doing it to drive more volume. It's not a real customer-centric type of, of solution that they're going to come up with. I mean, you know, a year from now, listen, please get me back on to tell me, hey, Ron, look how wrong you were. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, I, I don't know. I I don't see them overcoming the, the hurdles of changing existing digital wallet behavior and number two, driving... New usage among consumers who are not big digital wallet users today?
0: Well, and, and I guess the good news is they decided not to try to jump through the hurdle and, and get retailers that are not online um involved. Because that, that brings just even a, a bigger hurdle out there if you try to get um the small the small business to accept your wallet on the front end. You know, I think the biggest interesting thing from a standpoint of being an old-time banker like you and I are, is that what they're doing is they're, they're trying to capture insights around payments that consumers are making that right now show up just as an Amazon payment that doesn't show what they bought, doesn't show anything about what they've done. And if you're owning the wallet, you get that additional insight. The problem is, I, the horse left the barn. and I'm not even sure if that's the right saying anymore, but uh, the reality is it's too much too little, too late. and I, I continually roll my eyes whenever I hear um, any banking organization, big, a consortium, a big bank, any bank, talk about something' to introduce in another six months now and said they've been working on it already for six months. I'm saying, well, then the first six months are already going to be outdated. And why do you talk about introducing something in advance? I, I, I've i just never figured out. But that's the industry that we're in.
1: One last comment on that, though, Jim, before you move on. The, there's, a, there's an aspect to this, too, that just doesn't add up for me. You know, with P2P payments, uh, if you're Bank of America and you're in this consortium with Chase and Wells and, and other large financial institutions – you know they're not going to switch checking accounts between those because of the geographic and uh, limitations right. and all those kinds of things. However, how many consumers and I I'm one of them who has both a Bank of America issued card and a JP. Morgan Chase issued credit card. So a, a digital wallet that contains both it creates an inherent conflict. Of are that, the consortium partners are now fighting with each other more for for that for that behavior and that activity, and, and that that just doesn't seem to me to be sustainable.
0: Yeah, um, you know, switching a little bit in our in our research we've done for the digital bank report, we've obviously seen an emphasis on the use of data analytics and um, advanced technology, a, a greater emphasis on it. Where do you see? The impact of the emphasis on on personalization and data really impacting banking in twenty twenty three, or will it be simply the largest? And I'm going to I'm going to say it's largest and the smallest banks, the one the ones that are are actually have the funds to do something, and those that are partnering to get it done.
1: The biggest impact, Jim, I think, is going to be on product design. I think there's a, a limit to how much personalization they can continue to do on. Let's call it customer experience. You know, to a large extent, that's kind of driven by your platform, choice of platform providers, uh, and there's some things, of course, that they can do. But I think there's a growing recognition among mid-sized financial institutions that they they need to differentiate uh, on something other than just simply the customer experience, especially the digital customer experience. Uh, their hands are tied because they're relying on vendors and providers. Those providers might be very good. I'm not saying that they're not delivering a great experience, but they're pretty much delivering the same experience for every institution that they support. So this isn't just where the impact of personalization is going to uh, see itself go, but it's it's really where the opportunity is in the marketplace to differentiate the products, not just the, the customer experience.
0: Well, you know, and, and I'm also moving more and more towards those organizations that are most progressive are going to move beyond experience to engagement. I mean, using data and technology to get more interaction between the consumer and the financial institution. But again, you know, I, I'm seeing organizations still focusing so much on having good information as opposed to good implementation, good impact to the consumer. You know, there's a big leap between being able to show an organization everything about their consumer and show it in a nice, you know, visual way. And another to actually deploy that in the marketplace at speed and scale to say, I'm gonna be talking to Ron when he's most likely wanting to be talked to. Um, that's a big leap. I mean, and the banking industry to this point hasn't shown a real good ability to do that, even though they may know everything about me. You know, you recently also in an article, you wrote for Forbes, which again, I recommend everybody, you know, follow Ron on Forbes every week. And sometimes more often he comes out with with some great insights into the banking industry in his own, in his own humorous way to say, you know, is this going to work or is it not? And, and it's a great insight into what you should do next. But one of the things you talked about was, as you mentioned earlier, the future of tools such as Chat GPT. Um, what do you see as the future? And you know, there's a lot of people that have been naysayers, but I think they they wanted perfection out of the blocks, and that's not gonna happen what do you see as the future of of a tools like that
1: well i just published uh what yesterday uh latest fintech snark tank post proclaiming uh 2023 to be the year of the chatbot in yeah. banking and uh when i put that into my predictions post uh, about a month ago i was probably the the least well received Prediction I've ever made. People are like all over me on that one. Great, well, great article, Ron. I don't know about that chatbot. The uh, yeah. prediction, though, but I am I'm sticking by my guns. Not literally, of course. Yeah, but um, I'm I'm sticking with that, Jim, because it's more than just sort of a frontline customer support tool to handle the easy questions. Um, this is first of all, it, we got to really distinguish with some terminology here. The underlying technology is conversational AI, and and, and machine learning is kind of part of that too. It, 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 and that might be a separate. You may think of that as a separate technology, but what I'm really thinking is that that these two technologies kind of merge into something we call chatbots. But I had published a, a report a couple of months ago called the Chatbot Journey. Which talks about how financial institutions will start off with relatively simplistic chatbots that you know just answer a question, and then maybe you answer another question, and kind of evolve and grow to what the what a lot of folks in the industry would call an intelligent digital assistant. I don't like that term, but there's clearly a difference, and so I think thanks to ChatGPT, uh, I think a lot of financial institutions are getting to see the potential use cases for these technologies well beyond just sticking it on a website or a mobile app and as a a front end buffer before they get to people. I mean, that's what the, 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 uh, uh, you know, the, the phone trees have become, you know, they're, barriers to getting to people yeah and that's not where we're going with this where we're going with this is number one having a tool that's actually can can have a conversation with a customer or somebody else where it's not just simply a you know ask a question get an answer okay ask a different question get a different answer it's really more about having a conversation and then number two, actually bringing somebody in another human from the from the bank side who can pick up on that conversation but yep. jim i think where the smart banks are seeing the opportunity is an understanding that these this technology and i don't I keep wanting to not call them chat bots right. but this technology can support employees as much as it supports the customer it's yep. an in, can be an internal facing tool. You know, I interviewed a lot of firms uh, for this report that I wrote, and a lot of them, Jim, talk about making their chatbot a member of the team. You know, when I first heard that, I was like, "Groan! Oh, really? How hokey is this?" But after talking to them, and these are some really sharp people, I'm like, I under began to understand how they're, you know, trying to get infuse their technology, their chatbot with a personality and how they want that chatbot to be utilized by other employees as much as you know, sticking it in front of the, the customer. Uh, for anybody who is interested in this topic, I would suggest you go to LinkedIn and find an article that Chris Nichols from South State Bank uh, published uh, last week sometime on 15 use cases for chat GPT. And these are all internal facing things. These are not customer facing applications for it, but really interesting ways that uh, his colleagues at at South State are beginning to use this technology. And I do think, Jim, that's really gonna light a fire under a lot of financial institutions to say, this is not just a a simple thing you put out in front of customers to deflect, uh, deflect interactions going to the contact center.
0: Well, you know, I think also what's interesting is for those organizations that have developed great content, good good wellness solutions, good ways of financial managing your money, things of this nature, this chatbot can then integrate what that those learnings are and also point you to other parts of the organization. And as you said, how how good is that for an internal employee that really doesn't even know what kind of content their organization offers? Where this becomes part of that whole discussion point. And you know, for those organizations want to try to catch up to Erica by Bank of America. This is their opportunity because Bank of America has got, what, five, maybe seven years of advanced learning on, on how the interaction between a consumer and a chatbot can go. And the advantages towards making those into sales opportunities, solution opportunities, recommendation opportunities, you know, that's a good way to catch up is this technology. And, you know, from what OpenAI has said about how this whole technology is going to transform this year, we have to watch out because it's it's going to be honest. And and what's interesting is every consumer right now is already talking about it, which you don't see that very often in technology upgrades where, you know, everybody's talking about what this is and what it can do. And some of it's scary, but there's a lot of opportunity here. You know, going to go back to another article you wrote, because you've, you've done a lot at the end of the year, and the beginning of this year, you wrote a recent article about How the future of fintech firms may be as potential partners for community banks as VC money has dried up, but as the innovation that's needed within community banking environment really has ramped up. So it's a a perfect storm almost. Can you discuss a little bit about what your article said and what your belief is on, on how the bank and fintech collaborations can
1: take place? Yeah, for the past couple of years in the What's Going On in Banking study, I've been asking banks and credit unions about their fintech partnership activity. Um, this year, I asked them to quantify how much they are investing in fintechs. Um, consistent over the past couple of years, there is about a quarter of the respondents who say that they are making investments in in fintechs. And now, I, I got to... Sorry, Jim, I got to do a quick disclaimer here and explanation on things, because it really became clear to me this year. You know, I do this study every year and it's, you know, want to say, oh, a quarter of the banks, a quarter of the credit unions. But it's never really a quarter of all of the banks or all of the credit unions. Uh, My sample is very much, first of all, it is not representative of the overall population of banks or credit unions. You know, 4,000 banks, 4,000 credit unions, there's no way. That my data is representative of that total population, but what I do believe is that there is a segment of the banks and credit unions. My my colleague Steve Williams, founder, uh, co-founder, and president of Cornerstone, likes to call this group the troublemakers, the the group that are you know really focused on technology as an enabler and a differentiator. Uh, you know who are not just sitting back and doing nothing, and so I really think my my sample is very focused on that segment of the yep. bank and credit union population. And so when I say a quarter of them, it's not a quarter of the 1000, the 4000, it's a quarter of the 1500 or so troublemakers in the, in the industry. And so about a quarter of them last past couple of years have past two years have been making investments in fintech and that average per institution investment is increasing from 3 million per bank uh, last year to 4 million this year. And, and that's a lot of money. And I, I've estimated that's yeah. you know close to $2 billion. And when I look at the 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 allocation of VC funding into fintechs by category, I mean clearly the the VC funding has gone into a lot of direct to consumer or direct to customer, you know, direct to small business. Um, but there's a category of fintech that uh, I have some people and I like to call it enterprise fintech. It's the fintechs who support the financial institutions, right? And that's predominantly where the banks are investing. And they're not. Yeah, Chase has thrown some money into potential, you know, competitors that they might end up buying. But for yeah. the most part, mid-sized banks are investing in in fintechs that are developing technology that will support the. The banking industry. And um, there's a lot of money going into that. And I think they, are, or they, are, they may be becoming the, one of the primary sources of funding in that category.
0: I would agree, and 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 I think what we've seen as well in our research is that you know I'm going to expand fintech to saying third party providers because it really is changing quite a bit. I, we talked about the new account opening, we've talked about payments. You know, most of these organizations realize the best way to make headway in this quickly and at scale is to partner with an organization that's already gotten there, um, which is what the fintechs are and third party providers. You know, it's it's going to be interesting to see what happens because. I think everybody knows they've got to change the way they do things um be it in the term digital transformation or not but it's going to be interesting to see how those troublemakers go well above the industry norm as far as success and we're, we're going to start to see the differences i think and it's going to be interesting to see what happens so let's take a short break here and recognize the sponsors of this podcast Welcome back, I'm joined today by Ron Shevlin, Chief Research Officer at Cornerstone Advisors. We've been discussing financial services trends for 2023 and what the industry must do to become more future ready. So Ron, there continues to be a lot of talk around digital transformation banking we talked about at the top of the podcast, yet the pace of this transformation differs immensely between one organization and another. To be prepared for the future, Where do organizations have to put their big bets on today?
1: I'm a consultant. I've been a consultant for a long time, Jim. And so I have perfected the answer. It depends. It depends on where they're at and where they're going. And I think for a lot of financial institutions and especially, you know, those below the the top 10 who, you know, cover so much of the industry and so much of the, the population, it's really time for a lot of mid-sized institutions to really make sure that they know what they're, who they're serving. Um, and one of the challenges, and I know get a lot of pushback on this, you know, to say geography as, as a community is dead is, is a little overblown, but it's the direction it's going. And so understanding who are you really serving? What are the consumer segments that you're going to specialize and focus on serving, which of the small business uh, segments are you going to serve, is really kind of the starting point. And without that lack of clarity, Jim, I think a lot of financial institutions just sort of, you know, fumble around on things and just kind of move forward and try to, you know, improve processes and improve this or that. But the big bets have to be made on certain segments of the population that you want to serve from both a, a retail and consumer perspective and understand what are the products and set of services that you've got to differentiate on to, 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 to deliver that. You know, there's always a set of products and processes that are everybody has to do, and, and you've got to stay up to speed on those things. But you've got those aren't bets. Those are just costs of doing business. The bets are on on the segments and the, uh, the products and services that serve those segments.
0: So let's take the opposite of that. And we talk about this sometimes that, you know, we the the stop talking about this, just shut up. It's not it's not something you should be thinking about right now. What are some of those things right now that organizations like to dabble in discussions around that you just go just stop? There are so many things that have to come before this. What what are some of the items that organizations in 2023, at least as certainly the, the mid-sized and small organizations, just should not even spend one moment of awake time with it?
1: Here's what I wrestle with, Jim, is that there are things that you need to do in 2023 that aren't going, or banks need to do in 2023 that isn't going to pay off in 2023. And waiting till 2025 to do it when everybody is like like your your comment earlier about Bank of America and Erica, you know, when they started this, what, five, six years ago, whatever it was, it was kind of like, really, why are you doing this? But okay, they made the commitment. We'll still see if it pays off. But the... I still, Jim, if I'm talking to a board or a, an executive team at a strategic planning meeting, and you know, if they would ask me that question, what do I need to stop doing? It's like you can't answer that question in without the context of the, the strategy and direction yeah. answer.
0: And so it's kind of like uh, what you'd say with metaverse, in that, yeah, you may not be having to build this virtual branch, but you,
1: you better keep learning in that area. I'm glad you brought that up because that's a great example. I would say that to 99% of the financial institutions that I'd probably get a chance to talk to in 2023, I would tell them, don't bother with the metaverse in 2023. Having said that, let's take a look at Coastal Bank, Eric Sprank, Kurt K. Look what they've done with Coastal World. And they've built a metaverse uh, capability platform, whatever it might be, to engage consumers to help uh, drive engagement with their ecosystem. So they did it. They utilized this new technology, but it fit with their strategy, Jim. You know, and I last year I really took Fidelity to task. They had launched this, you know, metaverse thing, and it was just god awful. It was you know stupid. It was bad game. It was you know it was kind of bad because it didn't fit. The strategy, you know, they wanted to drive investment in a particular type of uh, investment class. It was like, this wasn't going to work. Who's yeah. gonna use this? 45 year old people, no, come on. But even though the utilization from a, a demographic perspective might not be there with older consumers, Coastal built the capability to help people understand who is in their ecosystem and, and have a tool to drive that in a engaging way. But is that going to be right for 99% of the other financial institutions? No way.
0: Yeah. No. So you've been in banking almost as long as I have. You know, a lot of times I'll look back and go, man, so many things have changed. You know, I I came in at the beginning of ATM cards, which is, they weren't debit cards, they were ATM cards. And I came in the beginning actually of the credit card, um, which is really going back, but Sometimes I go and I go, gosh, as much as things have changed, there are certain things in this industry that just completely freak me out that they haven't changed, that we're still battling the same battles. What surprises you about what hasn't changed since you got into banking?
1: Uh, you know, It's funny you should bring this up. Uh, at the Aoba conference this week, uh, I ran into an old buddy of mine, Jamie Punishel, who is now chief market officer at uh, encino Uh, he and i worked together years ago at at forrester Uh, he left forrester went to consulting then went to citibank for a while was really drove probably the best pfm implementation there ever was and city just let it sit on the shelf and die and then pretty much jamie left the industry until about six months ago when he came back uh to to encino and we were chatting at the conference and he said, you know, I'm listening to all these presentations at the conference, and it really strikes me that nothing's changed in 20 years. You know, there has been some terminology change. He said, you know, 20 years yep. ago, we were wrestling with, we have to automate everything. And now it's, we have to digitize everything. And he goes, what's the difference? We're, yeah. we're still not there. But I think, Jim, beyond that, the thing that that I would say from a personal perspective that hasn't changed that really drives me nuts is the lack of understanding that technology in and of itself can drive relationship. It it does not all just relationship does not have to be purely person to person, human to human, right? It can be technology intermediated or it can be completely technology. Uh, the founder of, of, uh, commerce bank in New Jersey, um, I'm just I'm blanking out on his name. I'll remember it as yep. soon as we end the recording. over
0: to uh, Europe. Vernon right? Hill. Yep. Vernon Hill. Yep.
1: Vernon Hill was quoted years ago as uh, he was asked why his bank wasn't making big investments in online banking. And he said, because nobody wants a relationship with a machine. Very pithy. Yeah. I'm not going to get nearly the, the exposure he, he got with that, with, with that response, with my response, which is nobody wants a relationship with a brick. It isn't right. about yep. the, ba- the brick. It is about the value you get from this products, services, and interactions. And if, and if listen, I, I got bad news for a lot of banks, Jim. Their technology interactions are better than their human interactions. You know, look at chat. We talked about it before, but, but chat
0: GPT, you could end up having them being much better you know that's that's what humanizing banking is it's it's saying can you listen and respond i mean that's what people want they want they want interactions not just transactions
1: jim there's a huge problem and this might be a good transition to another topic i know you wanted to talk about but there's a huge problem in the industry right now and that is skill levels of staff the the pandemic saw a lot of you know the, the 30-year-old 30-35-year employees, you know, Sally and Betty at the branch who knew you and knew everything and knew everything about the bank's products and services. And they retired. They're out, they're gone. And who's left? People with like I always joke, they have five minutes of of work experience, five minutes of experience with the institution. They're just not as good. My wife who handles the banking, and you you know my wife. Um, And you can imagine what, you know, the the hell she gives them when she walks in there, Um, you know, it's just like frustrated every time. It's like she not only knows more about finances, but she knows more about their own products and services than they do because we've been a customer for 25, 30 years. So you've got to use the technology to develop relationships. That view, Jim, has not changed in a long time. And and, uh, you just, there's just not enough people who are willing to, to adopt this new, new philosophy.
0: Okay. So not going to be a quick answer, but maybe we can get it done quickly. Is that how do organizations upgrade, update, train, immerse their employees into what they're needing to do to be successful in a, in a more digital environment?
1: Um, well, number one, stop requiring everybody to be in the office uh, and recognize that the skill sets and resources that you may need is going to come from people 300, 500, even 1,000 miles away, and you just don't have the luxury anymore of, of drawing on local talent. Uh, without I don't
0: that, need it, actually. It's not even a luxury anymore. You're The luxury is getting the right people for the future that may not be in your neighborhood. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, second, you, you, you've got to figure out what you really have to be good at. Uh, you know, one of the things I think it was somebody uh, maybe at the conference said that really stuck with me was he said, look, if you're a mid-sized bank, you can't build it all, but you might have to, integrate it all. And so understanding what skill sets you really need. And I think, Jim, looking out for the next couple of years, not only is there a set of technology skills that banks are going to need, but I think they're going to need a lot better human skills in things like integrated health. You know, one of the things I'm concerned about from a bank perspective is that they talk a good game about financial health. But I think if you look at other like HMOs and, and people out, you know, companies outside the industry who provide health, there's a much better recognition there that there is sort of this triad of physical health, mental health, and financial health that really plays into each other. Yeah. Uh, so I think, you know, a lot of banks are gonna need people that are like financial therapists. And it isn't, you know, it isn't just some fancy label you you slap on somebody. It's somebody who really has an integrated set of skills. Not going to be easy to find. They're not going to be easy to develop. But you've got to be, you decide: is this an you know an investment we need to make to serve a particular segment of, of of the segments of the market that we want to address?
0: You know, finally, Ron, what's the biggest opportunity in banking today?
1: Uh, I think the biggest opportunity is to find and serve a niche. Of the segment of the of the of the customer base, whether those are consumers or businesses, that are either untapped or underserved today um, with products and services that are unique to that or those segments of, of the market, where somebody says, "Oh my gosh, I can't believe you do that. Nobody else does that. You're the one I want to do business with." And you know what, Jim? And you can we can argue this, but. I don't care if they use uh, analytics and if they use some advanced technology to do it. If you're providing a set of products and services that are unique to a segment, that is going to really attract, attract that segment, and they're going to be willing to deal with or accept some shortcomings you might have in other technology areas because your product is so good and so specific for them. I think there's a lot of opportunity in the banking for financial institutions to find and serve those niches.
0: And to take out of their mindset that it's got to be just in their community. I mean, KeyBank's done a really good job at, at finding niches in the medical community and and saying, you know, we'll go globally if we have to, but certainly within the United States to serve the the individual doctor better than anybody else. It, it again you're not looking at simply the people that can come into your branch. The digital world gives you so many opportunities. I think you have a great point there that you've got to find that niche you can serve them better. Um that's the point
1: that affinity is the new community. Yeah. not geography. Yeah. And I think that's the the key point. And before we leave, word
0: on the street is that you're going to be soon introducing a new podcast. Can you give us a little bit of um, insight into what that's going to be and what we can expect?
1: Sure. So we had talked before that uh, for the past number of years, I've been producing a report called What's Going On in Banking. Uh, I've decided to extend the brand and create the What's Going On in Banking podcast. Uh, We already have two episodes under our belt that's out there on Spotify and all the popular platforms. Uh, But let me just give you a 30 seconds on what, why it's going to be different. I did not want to compete with the banking transformed and the breaking banks of the world. So I have a very different format. Uh, instead of a kind of talk show, let's get a guest on and, and kind of chat. The focus of all of the episodes will be on some breaking news in the industry. Uh, so the first uh, episode was about the OCC uh, comptroller, acting controller indicating that he had developed, they had developed a framework for breaking up the big banks. Uh, so I got Rob Blackwell, chief content officer of Intrify and former uh, editor-in-chief of American Banker to discuss that with me. And the second episode was about the announcement, as we had talked earlier about the uh, the introduction of the digital wallet yep. uh, from the consortium of big banks and Scott Harkey from Indava, who's a brilliant pay- payment expert in the space, got on with me. 15 minutes to 20 minutes tops discussion on one topic and what's going on and much less of an interview style and much more of, okay, here's what I think. Tell me why I'm wrong. John McLaughlin style, wrong, you know? Um, So 15 to 20 minutes on on specific topics with people who are experts in that topic.
0: That's great. It's always good to expand the brand, but also to talk about current information because you know there's there's no lack of content out there that needs to be talked about and these things that you know even in your way of doing it which which is looking at what the industry doing going you guys are thinking the wrong way and you know that's gonna be really entertaining looking forward to it so again ron thank you for being on the show again um you are you are the guest we've had on more than anybody else but there's a good reason why i mean it shows by the discussion we've had today there's so much to talk about and you really do have your your finger on the pulse of the industry so i appreciate your time thanks jim Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, the winner of three international awards for podcast excellence. If you enjoy what we're doing, please take 30 to 45 seconds to show some love in the form of a review. It really helps to grow our platform. Finally, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out the research we're doing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our senior producer, Leah Hathledge, audio engineer, Sean Roe Hoffman, and video producer, Will Pritz. I'm your host, Jim Marus. Until next time, remember, banking transformation is not a project. It's an ongoing process of modernization for survival.
1: You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging.